Welcome to the Sliders and Curveballs podcast. My name is Mike, and I'm here with my son, Joseph. Together, we are learning sports one game at a time. A 14-time NBA All-Star. 10-time NBA scoring champion. 5-time NBA most valuable player. Won 6 NBA championships. Scored 32,292 career points. At guard, 6 foot 6 from your Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan! For over 30 years, author Roland Lazenby has covered the NBA, researching and interviewing players, coaches, team staff, and family. He's written dozens of sports books, including bestseller Michael Jordan, The Life. Welcome to the Sliders and Curveballs podcast, Roland. Thank you so much for making some time with us today. Uh, Happy to do it, Mike and Joseph. Well, thanks so much. Now, um, Roland, correct me if I'm wrong, but I read Michael Jordan once saved your life. Uh, He did. It was uh, during a um, playoff game in, in Charlotte at the old arena. And I say old arena... And it's a little confusing, I guess. Um, They built a fancy new arena in Charlotte in 1988. It was in use for, I don't know, maybe uh, 22, 23 years. And then they tore it down and built another fancy new arena. But this was in the first fancy new arena uh, in Charlotte Coliseum. And, um, you know, I was... uh, Michael was walking out of the building. There was a back exit and it had a big loading dock. It was a big concrete loading dock with about a 10 or 12 foot drop off. And I I was walking backward. There was a group of reporters, not a large one, a small group. And he was talking to us as he walked. And I was recording what he was telling us and asking questions too. And I sort of was concentrating so hard on interviewing him, I didn't see that I was about to walk off that loading dock. I was within an inch of falling about 12 feet under a concrete backwards. Oh, my gosh. And he reached out and, and grabbed me at the last moment. Oh, my gosh. Well, look at that. That's an incredible story. So he had great reflexes even being interviewed. Uh, yes. And of course, he was walking forward. I was walking backward. So he suddenly realized I was about to go over the edge for a very bad landing. Oh, my gosh. I'm glad that he was there for you. And he had the uh, the wits to go ahead and, and, and grab you by the arm there. Joseph, why don't you um, say hello and then also kick us off with maybe our, our first question in this very special NBA podcast with Roland. Hey, Roland. Thanks for... Thanks for being um, 
here with us today. I'm super excited to learn uh, with you today. Uh, thank you, Joseph. First question. If, if I looked up Michael Jordan in a dictionary aside from all his great stats, what would it say? Well, probably it would depend on the dictionary. If it was a Chicago Bulls dictionary, it would simply say G-O-A-T, which GOAT is the acronym or the, um, the, the definition for greatest of all time. And of course, Bulls fans and a lot of other NBA fans consider him the greatest basketball player ever. Others have different opinions and say it might be different players. Uh, but Michael Jordan uh, today is an older man, but I wrote about his playing career when he was younger in the 1980s and 1990s, and he was quite fantastic. That's awesome. Roland, um, how do the chapters of the biography unfold for your readers and tell us what went into you researching this book about the world's most famous athlete. Well, you know, it it really begins, the uh, intro is an overview of his remarkable career and just how everyone reacted to him. He sort of mesmerized the basketball fan base in the 1980s. And uh, then, of course, it, it drops back to his birth and then the story of his ancestors, particularly the story of Dawson Jordan, who was Michael's great-grandfather. And the book really sort of begins by contrasting Michael's life as this famous basketball player who went on to become a billionaire with the life of his great-grandfather, who was a sharecropper and a moonshiner, but um, a, a guy that was sort of a legendary figure in the community, a guy that, that was appreciated highly by a lot of people. And so then it goes from there into his childhood because there's so many childhood stories and a number of them, I know this is a baseball podcast, um, and a number of them involve baseball because Michael's father, James Jordan, loved baseball. And the particular area uh, on the coastal plain of North Carolina where Michael's family lived when he was a boy. That was a big baseball area. And so, of course, it went from there to his basketball career, uh, high school, then the University of North Carolina, and then on with the Chicago Bulls, and then on to other things. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, we hear all the time, you know, our podcast, the name came when Joseph first started T-Ball. And we figured, you know, uh, sliders and curveballs. It would be tough questions for a seven-year-old and tough questions for our guests to be interviewed by a youngster. But I would say probably 50% of the podcast is baseball and the other 50% is the NBA. We're big fans of UConn basketball. And then we sprinkle in some other sports as we're trying to learn all these different 
you know, conversations and players and eras and things like that. And we're so excited for you to be with us. You want to ask another question, Joe? We know about the six champions, championships, night, championships, nights. What are a few of your personal top memories covering his career? Well, I think you could start with the day he saved my life. Actually, a number. Um, you know, in one sense, um, just being in the building on the nights he played, whether it was Chicago, the old Chicago Stadium, or the later they built, he he, he was so fabulous, they built a, a new arena. Uh, this was back in 95, the United Center, and that building too would become electric. Uh, and then as he won championships, every moment was special, and it was just so much fun to be there. But clearly, you know, his father got killed, was murdered, and Michael left basketball and went and made an effort to play uh, baseball, the sport his father loved, to honor his father. And when he came back, he decided to come back and play basketball again in March of 1995 and to cover those games, to cover his return, to be at all of those huge moments. It's hard to describe the excitement, the emotion. It was literally a global story. And uh, it, it, it really went through a series of events as he returned from his time of great sadness and anger about his father's death. Uh, but it was uh, the next three seasons, they won three of their championships. And that whole era was just a very, very exciting time for me. And his uh, Jordan himself was interesting to talk with. But so were his teammates, and and so it, it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. Let me ask you this, Roland. How much did Phil Jackson ultimately impact Michael's legacy? And can you explain to our listeners and, and Joseph what the triangle offense was? I mean, Kobe had Shaq a few years, and Michael had Scotty. Did both players use the offense the same way under Phil? Uh, they did not use it the same way. Uh, uh, by both players, do you mean Michael and Kobe? Yeah, I would say Michael and Kobe. Uh, well, they both played the same position. They were wings, or um, uh, which sort of fluctuated between being the off guard and the small forward. But the triangle offense was also called the triple post offense. And the uh, the developer of it, and one of my very best friends, was the late Tex Winter. And he had been a great college coach and then retired and was then hired by the Bulls. And so Tex Winter had a, a plan where the players – shared the ball. They passed the ball around. It was a structured offense, and it 
it controlled the tempo, it controlled the pace of the game. And so Michael at first, you know, he spent seven years in the league and he won lots of uh, scoring titles and lots of fan adulation because he was such an electric player. But the Bulls could not win championships. And then, uh, and they couldn't get their coaches to listen to Tex Winter to try some of the triangle stuff. Uh, but then Phil Jackson was named the head coach. And of course, he wholeheartedly embraced Tex Winter's system. And it took some doing because uh, the triangle offense was not a normal NBA offense. It was more of an offense for college basketball. But uh, eventually the players adjusted, and it it really focused on uh, a lot of things. Um, and I, I can explain it. Um, my only question is, this is a father-son broadcast. I'm not quite sure of the audience. Am I explaining it to... Ten-year-olds, uh, or um, am I, wh- who? Who are your listeners? Well, I would say the majority of our listeners are probably from ten up to grandparents. So, I mean, a brief explanation: yeah. Joseph's getting ready to try out for a travel basketball team tomorrow. Um, he's played a couple of seasons, just got done with little league travel. So, it, it hopefully he's hoping to be something like point guard, and it'll it'll uh, allow our listeners um, to get a little bit of a sense of you know, the offense that Michael was involved in and, and how it was so fantastic for him to score in. Well, uh, it, it was very different. Uh, you know, uh, an awful lot of basketball offenses today, just about all of them rely on a point guard. But the triangle was what you called a two-guard front. Instead of having the one guard, the point guard at the top of the offense running things, they had two guards sort of bringing the ball up floor in staggered fashion. And they used this to create uh, floor balance and uh, also to, to get ready to execute the offense. And it would often begin by one of the guards passing the ball to the other guard uh, and then cutting to the corner, one, one corner or the other. And this was called filling the corner. And usually the guard who filled the corner was somebody like John Paxson or Steve Kerr, excellent shooters. And what that meant is that the defenders had to go over and they had to put a man in the corner with that shooter. And that meant that somebody like Michael or Kobe Bryant could then be on the weak side. In other words... Uh, it would create an imbalance when, when they fill the corner and there would be three defenders on one side of the floor and a player like Michael or Kobe would be on the other side and it would create opportunities for that very talented player to attack and it would create situations where it was very hard to double team Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant. Now, that was just one of the series of the triangles, but that's the, the fundamental way it, it began. It, it, it was a very different offense. 
Now, you know that name, Steve Kerr, don't you, Joseph? Yeah. Who is he the uh, the coach of? Golden State Warriors. That's right. And um, There you go. Yeah, so to have an opportunity to put a prolific shooter in the corner really gave a lot of space for guys that played above the rim and were playmakers themselves to be able to carve up a defense. Right. And, of course, you you can't really run the triangle offense anymore because they changed all the time rules. They cut the – it used to take 10 seconds to get the ball across half court. They've cut that to eight. Uh, when you got an offensive rebound, you used to have a new 24-second shot clock to work again. Uh, they, they've cut that down to 15. And so by trimming the timeline, they were able to eliminate uh, the triangle offense, uh, they being the uh, NBA and its rules committee. Uh, but they were also able to speed up the game, and I thought that you know that would work better. There are some people who think, you know, you should leave the time thing alone. And if you want to speed up the game, you can do that. If you want to control the tempo, you can do that. But it's it would be impossible. But just Steve Kerr, as coach of the Warriors, having played in the triangle so much, his team still uses little pieces of the triangle, like the corner series or things like that. The triangle is somewhat complicated. It always took time to learn it, but once the Bulls had it down, they won two different three-peats with basically a whole different roster uh, around uh, Michael Jordan and Scotty each time. Just incredible. Now, do you feel that, did the NBA do that deliberately to, to uh, you know, eliminate that particular offense that works so well, kind of like changing the game, even the way Wilt Chamberlain used to play and and different rules as far as the paint and stuff like that? Well, they have always um, adopted rules for different things. When African-American players came in, uh, the, the rules makers of basketball wanted to eliminate the dunk. They didn't do that in pro basketball, but they they did it in college basketball against Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. When George Mikan, the first big center, came in, they had, they had a lane that was shaped like a keyhole, and it was very narrow. And so he could set up and go to work, and it was very tough to defend it. So they, they widened the lane. They later widened it again as Wilt became very good. And they've always played with the rules, but basically pro basketball wants to create star players, and they want to score as much as possible. And so by changing the rules – they have uh, created much more scoring, although it's not as proficient, and some think it's not as as beautiful and engaging a game today as it was. But they are making lots and lots and lots more money, particularly before the pandemic. And as the pandemic eases, there are signs they will continue to make lots and lots and lots of money. Yeah, and of course, the three-point shot is so much more prolific now as it was years ago. Joseph, um, I think they have a rule change that you're aware of that James Harden does a little bit, and they're trying to avoid him doing what What kind of a funny thing does he do sometimes when he shoots? I forgot. Well, remember how when he goes up, he, he kind of kicks his legs out a little bit, and he tries to draw all those fouls? I guess they're trying to make a little bit of a change on that, right? 
Right. They, uh, you know, Tex Winter, my great friend, uh, when they first began changing the defense rules to where you absolutely could not touch another player in the backcourt, um, someone driving to the lane, not even the, a hint of a hand check. Uh, he called it the death of defense. And with with such a desire to have so many, um, uh, so much offensive success, so many players scoring lots of points. They, they, the, the people who run the NBA know that gets the fans excited. It always has since the earliest days of the NBA. And so they want to do things to, to create more, but the old timers, a lot of them uh, would, would, would rather the game stay a little more balanced. But I think today's fans are very happy with it as it is. Yeah, Joseph, do you want to tell Roland a couple of your favorite players? Now, we we uh, we took Joseph to his first NBA game. We actually saw the Boston Celtics, who are not too far from our home. We live in Connecticut. They played against um, Golden State just before the pandemic. And unfortunately, Steph Curry was rehabbing, but we got to see him shoot warm-ups with his wrist. And then two days later, we got to see them beat Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons with the Sixers. Um, And then ironically, we actually uh, are going to be going in January of this year to see the Celtics play the new look Bulls. Uh, Who are some of your favorite players though, just overall in the league, Joe, if you want to mention two or three. Uh, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, um, uh, Jason Tatum. Yeah, I'll tell you, those are uh, three three pretty good guys to follow. Uh, you know, Steph Curry, I live in the mountains, the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, the western part of the state, toward a, around a city called Roanoke. And uh, Steph Curry's family, his mother is from this region, and his father is from the Shenandoah Valley right next to this region. He spent a lot of his childhood here at basketball camps at Roanoke College. And, you know, a lot of people in this area just admire his family so much. And they admire Steph. You know, he's uh, he's not only a great basketball player and a most valuable player, he's just always, always been a, a really, really solid person. And uh, a really bright guy, you know, he he played his college ball at, at Davidson down in North Carolina near Charlotte, a great guy. And, and, you know, Jason Tatum, what an incredible young player. He just gets better and better. He's young, but, you know, he, he came out of Duke. Uh, another, uh, obviously, uh, I live in ACC country, Atlantic Coast Conference, and Duke is a big part of that. And then, uh, you know, Kevin Durant, man, we saw how great he was this year trying to lead an injured Brooklyn Nets team in the playoffs. He was incredible. And so you've picked some pretty good guys there. Absolutely. Who knows? Maybe some of them will be future uh, books for you to write. Joseph, why don't you fire off another question? Michael and Nike have been married longer than my parents. He was cut from his high school team. His Tim Grover workouts are legendary. Tell me some. 
something from your your book that the average NBA fan might not know. And he was saying that his Tim Grover workouts are legendary as well. They are. You know, Michael played at the University of North Carolina. Dean Smith, uh, the, who was the legendary coach for uh, the Tar Heels then, was not a big believer in weightlifting. But when Michael was a player in the NBA, uh, you know, his first several years, he really took a physical beating from the Detroit Pistons and other physical teams. And he realized part of having to, uh, part of winning a championship meant that he had to be stronger and uh, really able to deal with all the punishment these other teams would dish out. Uh, and that involved what came to be known as the Breakfast Club with Scotty Pippen and Michael and and Ron Harper, who was uh, on that team when they came back. But boy, they, they trained with Tim Grover, who became a famous trainer training them. Uh, but, you know, those guys also, uh, they didn't just train their bodies. Phil Jackson wanted them to train their minds. And so he got them into what's called mindfulness uh, and a lot of meditation. And uh, my my great friend, George Mumford, um, ha- has written a book for, for young athletes called The Mindful Athlete. Uh, and uh, George Mumford... Uh, was hired by Phil Jackson, was brought in to work with uh, Michael and Scotty and all the Bulls. And he he was given a lot of credit for helping them. And it really helped them while they were on the floor competing to, to, to be able to maintain the tremendous focus needed in basketball. And Phil Jackson later uh, brought George Mumford to uh, Los Angeles to work with the Lakers. And I had the honor of introducing George Mumford to Kobe Bryant uh, before George even went to work for the Lakers. And I also introduced Tex Winter to Kobe Bryant. So um, uh, it's funny how that Bulls basketball culture with with Phil Jackson moved west to be with the Lakers. Yes, it sure did. When you had the opportunity to sit down and interview uh, Michael directly, what did those conversations reveal to you, especially compared to some of the other stars that you've talked to? Well, um, when I was really starting to do interviews with Michael, the Bulls were in a lot of conflict. Uh, Jerry Krause, their general manager, and Phil Jackson – uh, their coach had had gotten along, and then they didn't get along anymore. They were arguing over money, and so uh, the players were uh, Michael and Scotty, and some of the other players were also upset with Jerry Krause. So it was a time of tremendous conflict, and the public didn't understand it because. Nobody really discussed it, except that it was my job uh, sometimes to sit down 
and and talk with the various people, Jerry Krause and Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan, about their conflict. And I often thought maybe if they could talk it out, it would be okay. But Michael told me, no, the feelings are too hard. We'll never be able to talk it out. And sure enough, after they won six championships, the Bulls broke up as a team. Yeah, it's hard to believe that they couldn't just keep it going and maybe get a a, a championship uh, or two more. Yeah, I think they'll always feel they left some on the table. But um, Jerry Krause had gotten so angry. He said Phil Jackson could no longer be the coach. Uh, he said, I don't care if we win all 82 games, which no team would ever do. He said, even if we went 82-0, and 0, this is Phil Jackson's last year. I, and I wrote a book on that season called Blood on the Horns, and it was about the 97-98 Bulls when they won their sixth championship and then Krause broke up the team, along with team owner Jerry Reinsdorf. Look at that. And, you know, this is sounding eerily familiar, a little bit like The Last Dance, which I understand that your almost 700-page book sitting on my coffee table with a beautiful cover was used kind of as a Bible for that programming. That's what the director, Jason Hare, said. He said Blood on the Horns and Michael Jordan the Life were his Bibles for that series. Look at that. Congratulations. Joseph, Thank here's you. an interesting question. I think we may know the answer to it, but we're going we're gonna to put some sliders and curveballs towards Roland here. If you were starting a team tomorrow and can pick from any player in basketball history, who's your first pick and why? Wow. Boy, that's an that's a stumper. There's a lot of great players in basketball history. You know, I might have a tendency to to take Bill Russell. I might have a tendency who was the great center. He won 11 championships with the Boston Celtics. I might have a tendency to take Michael Jordan. You know, he, he won the six championships. I might have a tendency to take Kobe Bryant. He was a great player. Oh, the list could go on of great players. Tim Duncan, who was so magnificent with the Spurs or... You, you know, uh, any one of the Warriors there that, that were that were good, Kevin Durant, uh, Steph Curry, uh, you, you know, um, Clay Thompson. Um, but I really think I'd probably still take Jordan. LeBron, I should add LeBron James you know, would Joseph, be in that list. You got any number of players. Oh, sure. But I probably Joe's still a big fan of a guy from the Milwaukee Bucks, too, right, Joe? Yeah, Gian Santetokounmpo. Giannis is a fantastic player that you know Joseph what? likes You're to root for as well. You're better pronouncing that name than I am. I'll tell you, <laughs> I love he it. really impressed me. I, and I knew he was good. I knew he was good, but I'm saying this year, uh, his team was down 0-2 in the finals. and. He had to play flawlessly, and, you know, that's that's not a thing that's easy to do. But he was very impressive, so you'd have to put him on that list. 
of candidates. Yeah, he's fantastic. Going back to a lot of the games that you've covered with MJ, is there a particular story you can share? Um, you know, just something that really kind of stood out to you, whether it's the shrug game or the flu game or something like that, that you, you found to be just an outstanding memory for yourself? Well, I was covering him in college. And the University of Virginia had Ralph Sampson, who was seven foot four the college player of the year, an amazing guy. And the North Carolina Tar Heels came to Virginia to play. And, uh, you know, UVA had something like a 20-game a winning streak or something ridiculous on their home court. But Michael in North Carolina got a huge lead. And then... Suddenly, Virginia stormed back at the end of the game, and they cut it to like four points, and suddenly UVA had the ball on a break, and Ralph comes down, and he's going to take a shot from the elbow, and Michael Jordan has retreated down to the block, and Ralph Sampson goes to take that jumper at seven foot four, and Michael leapt across the lane and swatted away Samson's jump shot. Uh, It startled everybody in the arena, including both coaches. And Terry Holland was so amazed, he told me he began clapping and caught himself and stopped. He was the Virginia coach. And, (laughs) you know, we all sort of jumped. It shocked us. It was so stupendous. And so 15 years later, one night in Charlotte Arena, I was sitting there. Michael was sipping coffee out of a styrofoam cup before the game. And I said, Michael, do you remember that block against Ralph? He said, remember it? I could never forget it. He said, that surprised even me that I could do that. And he said, that was the amazing thing about a lot of the things that I did as I went along. They surprised even me. I had no idea I could do those things. It's tremendous. I mean, I love basketball defense. And if you look at some of the memories in the NBA finals recently, um, Bam Adebayo's block on Jason Tatum, LeBron's pinned basketball off the glass, flying high doesn't all have to be about offense. It could be very magical and beautiful on defense with a big stop. That's why you'd have to think long and hard about the great Bill Russell if you were starting a basketball team. The only thing I will say there is that Michael is the greatest because he was a great two-way player. He's just a fabulous defender many nights. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Roland. Can you tell us a a little bit about some of your past books and and what might be coming up next in, in your storytelling? I mean, how long does it take to research a book like this? Well, my next book is uh, basically a book tentatively set up to be Magic Johnson, The Life. And of course, I've spent, I've written a bunch of books about the Lakers. So I've spent years sort of on this, but I I really have spent three years with all the new research on every phase of his life, what made Magic Johnson such a great player. He was such a special teenager. I'm not, you know, I've coached a lot and I'm not sure I've 
I've spent hours talking to his high school coaches. I'm not sure I ever ran into a more impressive teenager, and I really coach some impressive ones. But um, so I've been working on that. You know, I, I um, really, it was back in the 80s. I, I used to do a good bit of college basketball work. I did uh, five books with Billy Packer, who was a top college broadcast college basketball broadcaster for decades. And then uh, I got into doing NBA work. And I started with the Celtics. Did the Celtics Green Book for five years. I, I did the same for the Pistons. And I even added the Lakers. And I, I you know, I, I just came along right when basketball was in its prime. It wasn't as popular then. I mean, there were a lot of fans filling the arenas. Don't get me wrong, but. You know, it wasn't the global sport then that it is now, but I've been very fortunate to do an array of books over the years as basketball was unfolding and to be one of the witnesses to a lot of it and to get to know some of the great minds and and great players. it's, uh, it's, it's, It's been a fun career. Well, thank you so much, Roland. We appreciate you spending time with a father and son learning sports. Um, yeah, I was a big Michael Jordan fan growing up. It was so neat to be able to, he did things that I've never seen on a basketball court before. And, you know, I've watched Magic and Bird. That was a great era. And he really changed the game. We look forward to digging into the book even further. And we're just so grateful that you'd, uh, you'd take some time uh, to, to spend with us and, and share some of your great stories. Well, Joseph, thank you for your great questions. Michael, thank you for uh, setting all this up. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Enjoy the upcoming season, and and we hope to talk to you again in the future when you have some more books to be able to, uh, to share stories about. No problem. Thank you. Thank you so much, Roland. I'll be happy to do that. All righty. We'll see you next time. We appreciate it. Bye-bye. Have you gotten the recording?